0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
1: The The Telegraph. Podcasts.
2: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today. We bring you the latest updates from Ukraine, discuss the news that Ukraine has been formally recommended for EU membership, and we do a deep dive with an expert into the country's wartime budget.
3: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If
2: we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job.
0: Slava
1: Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're
4: Ukrainians.
2: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 8th of November, one year and 257 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Brussels Correspondent Joe Barnes and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley. And our guest is Yuri Gaidai a senior economist at the Centre for Economic Strategy. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine.
0: Sure. Hi, everybody. Hi, David. Let's start down in Hezon Oblast, the left bank of the Dnieper River. Do I need to do left and right again? I love it. I love it. Okay. so the left bank, we talk about rivers in the way they travel. So, you know, if you're floating down the river, sort of going downstream, the left bank is obviously to your left right bank is is the other side without taking my shoes off so in this context down in Herzon, the left bank is the east bank that's currently under been held by or primarily held by russia and i say primarily because russian sources are saying that ukraine has managed to transfer a small number of armored vehicles to that left bank to the east bank of Herzon oblast across the dnieper river and are continuing larger than usual ground operations there with a light infantry grouping of roughly battalion size very roughly we think therefore about 600 soldiers depending on the role depending on the mission a battalion an infant light role infantry battalion about 600 soldiers it may be different depending if it's a armored infantry or what have you but you know you're talking some hundreds low hundreds so there's they're thought to be in the krynki area and russian sources are continuing to claim that ukraine maintains positions in the center of the town there and nearby areas now, other Russian mill bloggers referring to a picture that was apparently taken on Monday, purporting to show a, a Ukrainian tracked amphibious transport vehicle that itself was carrying an infantry fighting vehicle. So, a lot of different um, different things happening here. But basically, a, a a tracked amphibious transport vehicle that can swim, can get across water, but carrying stores. In this case, carrying a, a carrying an infantry fighting vehicle. So, a, a vehicle that's designed. Not just to survive, armored personnel carriers are designed to to put up with small arms fire and shell fragments, as long as it's not within roughly ten meters ish. Um, but armored personnel carriers are designed to get you to the fight safely. Infantry fighting vehicles are designed to be used in the fight. So this thing, this thing that was able to swim across the river, was seen to be carrying an infantry fighting vehicle over to the east bank uh, near near Krenke. so just as a reminder so we're about 30k's northeast of on City and a couple of k's across the river so our other russian mill bloggers so we're still on the russian sources here all the usual caveats apply other russian mill bloggers are claiming yesterday or claimed yesterday that a ukrainian amphibious amphibious fighting vehicle did cross the river on its own um, and used they refer to separate footage also thought to have been taken yesterday purporting to show a destroyed western amphibious armoured personnel carrier uh, in an unspecified location on the east bank so we've been talking for some time about elements of ukrainian forces on that east bank don't quite know if it was we were positing the idea that it was a it was reconnaissance or reconnaissance in force we didn't know if it was an attempt to actually get across and hold ground or whatever if the ukrainian forces are going across with armour particularly infantry fighting vehicles, which implies you're then going to push on rather than just look after yourselves for whatever your mission is, IFE is generally less expendable than armoured personnel carriers. They're more complex. There are you know, fewer of them. Then that is, that is significant. So the Institute for the Study of War, US think tank, they say Ukrainian forces are likely to have conducted initial company-sized assaults across the Dnipro River, company circa 120 people, across the Dnipro River onto that left bank over the period uh, in late october or mid to late october now this reported they are saying this reported battalion sized ukrainian force on the east bank suggests that the heavy recent heavy russian interdiction efforts along that river mainly artillery have not prevented ukrainian forces from transferring additional personnel and material material to positions across the east bank now isw then say they ISW will not speculate on the prospects of ongoing Ukrainian activity on the East Bank of Herzon Oblast. However, ISW very, very, very rarely comment on Ukrainian dispositions activity for operational security reasons. So the fact they've said what they have and make the point they're not gonna speculate, I'm reading that as what they've said before, they are they are pretty solid on. They're pretty certain that has happened so when they're talking about battalion-sized ukrainian force on the east bank then i think that's we should take that as as pretty accurate so something's going on down there something has been going on for quite some time maybe what we were reporting a couple of weeks ago was the reconnaissance in force and then this is now the effort to do something we think um, ukraine has been massing air defense elements in the area which which would provide a bubble across the other side of the river. The air defence elements have been on the on the right bank, on the west bank, the Ukrainian-held bank, but obviously their bubble of protection will extend across onto the Russian-held side. So, as ever, we will continue to watch that area, but it, it looks like it's more than we thought a couple of weeks ago. Now, elsewhere, Ukraine is bracing for a renewed assault Uh, on Avdivka. So just to remind you, we're about 5 k's north of Donetsk City now. Um, This follows the recent unsuccessful attempts, numerous unsuccessful attempts by by Russia to take the town. This is uh, Vitaly Barabash, who's the head of the Avdivka military administration. Speaking yesterday, he said the third wave will definitely happen. The enemy is regrouping after a second wave of unsuccessful attacks. He said that Russia was likely to be ready to launch its next full-scale assault on the city, but the weather conditions were currently unfavourable. I think it's it's still quite warm, but it's starting to get wet down there. If anyone's near the area, I appreciate an update there. Dika, just to just to bring us up to speed, almost completely destroyed by nine years of fighting. It's been in the right on the front for four years since the since the the invasion in 2014, but only around and only around 1,500 of the city's 30,000 pre-war residents remain there living mainly in basements bomb shelters and so on separately ukraine has deployed new western air defense systems as we're bracing for this second winter of russian attacks on the enemy grid so president zelensky speaking on social media he's hailed the deployment of additional nasam's mobile surface-to-air launchers norwegian american surface-to-air launchers he said i received reports on the receipt of ammunition hardware and equipment over the past day additional nasam systems from partners have been put on combat duty Timely reinforcement of our air defence before winter. Okay, a couple more. A Russian backed politician has been killed in a car bomb in annexed eastern region of Luhansk, or the temporarily occupied eastern region of Luhansk. This is according to local media. So Mikhail Filiponenko, who is former head of Luhansk local militia, the, the Russia backed separatist army in inverted commas and in a very small a, that's been fighting since 2014. His son told the Luhansk Information Centre as a result of an explosive device that detonated in Mikhail uh, Filipinenko's car. The People's Council deputy received injuries incompatible with life. So Russian media have posted photos of a destroyed vehicle saying that uh, that was the aftermath of the attack. And Russian state media TASS said it was not the first time there'd been an attempt on Filipinenko's life. His car was previously blown up in in February this year, but he, he survived that one. Now, several high profile Kremlin backers and Moscow installed officials across the um, occupied territories have been attacked and some assassinated since the start of the full scale invasion. You'll remember last month, Oleg Siaryov, who's a pro-Kremlin politician that Moscow, we think, were lining up to lead some kind of puppet government in Kiev if, if it had all, all worked out. Uh, he survived being shot in a hotel in Crimea, but, of course, there have been others. Now, on this, um, there may you may see other reports of, if this was an assassination, but you may see other reports linked to Ukrainian forces. So just to clear this up, which we've not covered before, but a, a, a senior Ukrainian military aide was killed on Monday. He was celebrating his birthday. A birthday present exploded. There were some suggestions, because this, this, this chap, Major Gennady Chastyanakov was an aide to General Zelensky, so there was some thought that maybe it was it was because of those links. However, Interior Minister Igor Klimenko has, has come out today and said no, it wasn't an assassination. It was it was just a, a tragic incident. Uh, he said yesterday that um, Major Chastyanakov died at his home in the village of Chayki, which is just on the western outskirts of of Kiev said to have been showing his family six grenades that a colleague had given him as a 39th birthday present when his son took one and began twisting the ring. Mr. Komenko said the serviceman took the grenade from the child, pulled the ring, leading to the tragic explosion. I mean, it's silly, but a a terrible story. His son was seriously injured in in the incident, and police are investigating it. But you might hear the two stories conflated, which is why I wanted to clear that one up. And that's it for now, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom, for all of that.
2: Let's, because there's big news from the EU this morning. So let's go to Joe Barnes. Joe.
3: Yeah, hi, folks. Uh, sitting here in the European Commission's uh, Burleybond headquarters, just sort of fresh out of the Ursula von der Leyen press conference where she invoked a call to history, a call of history, sorry. As she announced, the European Commission had officially recommended Ukraine to start formal membership talks to join the EU. So that's sort of a huge, huge moment. That so last year Ukraine was considered as a candidate, but was told no, you've got more to do in terms of these pro-European reforms, meeting our standards. But today is the the point where the Commission says, look, we think you've done enough, and you deserve to start these formal membership talks. So. Ursula von Leyen was clear in saying this was historic because it comes almost a decade after the Maidan revolution when protesters wearing European flags were shot by the authorities trying to cramp down on anti-Russian and pro-Western movements in Kyiv. And so speaking to Ukrainian journalists, friends in the press room just there, they were saying, look, this is massive for us because we've reached this point and it's been paid with the blood of our people. But... Obviously, lots of caveats when it comes to the European Union and how long it takes for things to happen. It's not going to be plain sailing for for Ukraine. Um, this is simply a recommendation from the Commission, from Ursula von der Leyen, who has been, uh, to her credit, a staunch backer of Ukraine, often going further than member states with her backing. So, Ukraine will still need the endorsement and this recommendation to be signed off by the EU's 27 member states. That will likely be done in December at the last European Council Summit of the year. So, according to the Commission, Ukraine had worked through, or has worked through, 90% of the seven recommended reforms that Kyiv was set when it was granted candidate status. The the main kind of thing is this. Are your standards for the environment, for safety of goods, democratic, judicial... Uh, are are you basically good enough to be a European democracy, is what the EU is challenging them to do. And so this is what Ursula von der Leyen had to say. So he goes, Ukraine continues to face tremendous hardships and tragedies provoked by Russia's war of aggression, and yet the Ukrainians are deeply reforming their country even as they are fighting a war that is existential for them. So what is left in that remaining 10% that isn't done yet? So Ukraine will still need to bring itself closer to European standards on fighting corruption, reducing the influence of oligarchs on politicians and the protection of minorities. And there's also a sort of another area, I guess, matches in with corruption, is they need to create political lobbying laws that are represent, basically, in in line with Europe's standards. But so let's go back to the protection of minorities because that's interesting and often not spoken about but it is a big concern for Hungary, which is one of, sort of, Russia's closest allies in Europe, or, and its closest ally in the European Union, for sure. And Hungary will probably look to try and fraught, make this process as hard as possible over the treatment of what it sees as ethnic Hungarians living in Ukraine, so around that Transcarpathian area which where Hungary and Ukraine both share a border in, I believe it's sort of in the southwest, uh, if my geography is correct. But there are also ethnic Bulgarians and Romanian minorities also living in Ukraine, so that's that's to overcome. So the concerns basically refer to language. Can these ethnic Hungarians, Bulgarians, Romanians speak their native language if it isn't Ukrainian? Have they got access to education that is in line with their native country if it's not not Ukraine and do they have access to media that would be considered Hungarian, Bulgarian or Romanian so it's a similar vein but let's move on so the plan from this point is if EU states adopt the commission's recommendation in December Ukraine is going to expect to be working on those string of reforms that's still to be completed from then on there will be a review in March of next year And then if the member states are happy with how the reforms are going, they'll adopt what is called a negotiating framework. So that will be sort of where does Ukraine go next? Is it a roadmap, as it's often spoken about in NATO circles? But basically, what does Ukraine have to do next to satisfy European member states enough that it is worthy of being a European member state? So Charles Michel has said he wants this process basically the EU's eastward expansion, to happen by 2030. So let's kind of talk about how long this could take, because the answer is potentially decades rather than Charles Michel's ambitious seven years. So if you look at Turkey's application, that came in 1987. They were granted candidate status, which is basically we think you're good enough to join, but we're not going to let you start formal membership talks in 1999. In 2005, those accession talks started in 2018 due to what the European Council described as a backsliding in reforms linked to membership, that process was frozen. So that is from start to finish from start to now is 36 years. So Ukraine isn't going to be an EU member overnight, it will probably be closer to 7 years and it will be 36 years but it's still a long process Albania I believe is 15, 16 years in, in the line And then I think the the one thing that many people haven't answered, and I tried asking Ursula von der Leyen, but uh, unfortunately, (laughs) being a British journalist, it's harder to get a question than if I was a European Union journalist these days. Um, There's questions over how much of Ukraine can be considered for EU membership. So part of the country has been occupied since 2014, when Russian-backed proxies entered the Donbass and... Sees say, part of Donetsk, part of Luhansk. And then there is the full-scale invasion of last February and still questions over how much land is occupied by Russia. So will Ukraine be allowed to join the EU in its entirety? Or will the European Commission have to draw lines essentially choosing what part of ukraine can benefit from single market access and where would the external border of that single market be in ukraine i'm still waiting on answers on that so i won't speculate too much but the genuine consensus around sort of speaking to people involved previously is that only parts of ukraine that are under the full control of ukraine will be allowed into the single market so that will exclude sort of large parts of the country, which Ukraine deems to be Ukrainian, but doesn't have full military control over. So, an EU officials insist the membership process is moving forward at an incredible speed, which could actually be quicker than the end of the war itself, because we've heard about lots of stalemates now, people speaking about a long, slow, drawn-out conflict as Ukraine struggles to expel its Russian invader. So, there will have to be a decision. Will part of Ukraine be allowed to join able to join the EU or will they hive off say a large chunk which is still occupied by Russia and Ukraine is still fighting back control for so will that bit be excluded from EU membership or will the EU tell Ukraine it is not allowed to join until the conflict is fully resolved has there been some sort of peace agreement peace talks to end that but that's still that's still open for debate if, if we look at what happened with Ukraine's NATO membership ambitions they were basically told it's a hard no until the war is over so we're still waiting on that EU decision but what I can say is and I've previously written pieces on this is that a lot of people in Europe now see Ukraine's EU membership as the forerunner for achieving peace so can you potentially convince President Zelensky to go to the table and negotiate for peace with promises of single market access if we draw a line and have an uncontested zone or something like that. That's all, again, it's all speculation, but that's sort of questions that are going to have to be overcome. And then also on the EU accession process, while we're there, it wasn't just about Ukraine today. Moldova was also granted the same conditional, even though the EU calls it non-conditional, membership ambitions for accession talks. Georgia was offered conditional candidate status and then bosnia was also told that if you meet certain conditions you will be allowed to start at some point so it's a when a degree of compliance is reached there so that it's what is launched today is the eu's potential expansion into the east and into the western balkans and it'll be the biggest expansion since eastern europe was allowed in and i'll stop there
2: well thank you very much joe i thought that was excellent talking us through all the implications and speculations around the the announcement today can I ask you just a bit more about your experience in the room you were there as von der Leyen was saying this what was the atmosphere like how did she come across
3: yes she's she was kind of picturing this as a big sort of historic moment as I said she described it as a call of history she was absolutely resolutely behind Ukraine she couldn't have been praising enough of how Ukraine is managing to fight a war against this Russian invader but also Trying to reform itself on a European path away from its sort of Soviet legacies of sort of a country that's seen as being deeply corrupt with the control of oligarchs over the politicians, etc. She was praising the movement towards a more European esque country. But it's obviously you get a lot of excitement from moments like this. Um, So, like for our British listeners, some of you may have have been happy to have left the European Union with Brexit, others not so much. But for the journalists from smaller countries, so there was a um, a uh, Georgian journalist who couldn't help but, when she was drawn to the question, couldn't help but thank Ursula von der Leyen for this decision there were Ukrainians in the room as I, as I said, who were saying, this is a big moment for us, this is what we've been fighting for this is what we paid for with our blood of, the con- our, blood of our countrymen and women, um, it's a big moment and again, then you had obviously, like, disappointment you had, say, Serbian uh, journalists in the room Asking questions about why they were excluded from this, and the answer is basically, Serbia is seen as a country that doesn't want to join the European Union anymore. It's uh, it's close knit with Russia. It's um, signed a trade agreement recently with China. So it's lots of joy in the room. It's an exciting moment. It's a big moment um, for those countries involved in this because it's seen as a time of it will. They, they're promised sort of big booms to their GDP. GDP and their economies as part of the single market they, it gives people journalists the right to go and work wherever they want it gives people the right to go and work wherever they want so it's an exciting moment for lots of people and yeah it's, it's nice to sort of share share um, their enthusiasm with them especially the Ukrainians who, who I've said have been say calling for this for a long time
2: well thank you very much Joe we'll come back to you later because I know you've been doing a lot of other reporting as well not just EU stuff let's go to Francis Durnley then
1: Well, thanks, David. I think the most extraordinary thing about this EU announcement from the perspective here in London is how unsurprising it is, a testament to the way this war has changed perceptions of Ukraine and fostered a close relationship between Kyiv and Brussels. We haven't had the reaction from President Zelensky yet, but it will no doubt come, as Joe's been explaining, as an immense relief, though I'm sure he was aware of the direction of travel sometime in advance. Opening negotiations with Moldova and granting candidate status to Georgia are also noteworthy. Two territories Russia has seen as countries under its own sphere of influence, of course. Indeed, one should see this geopolitically as a major blow to Moscow. Imagine how we would be responding to this if these nations were becoming closer to a union led from Moscow. It underlines the degree to which this war remains a significant blow to Putin's objectives for the continent on the whole. But in other political developments, in a, well, a frustration to Zelensky's outreach objectives, he has been forced to cancel a visit to Israel planned for this week after the trip was leaked to an Israel TV channel. He was set to visit the country yesterday, we learn, until news of his plans were briefed to Israel's Channel 12 News. Israeli officials insisted that the trip had only been postponed, but no date has been set yet. A Ukrainian diplomat told The Times of Israel that Zelensky was very disappointed by said leak. I'm sure that's true for all the reasons we've discussed in previous episodes. Zelensky has been keen to show support for Israel and the Western powers' efforts to defeat terrorism that he sees as supported by Moscow as well as keeping the plight of Ukraine, of course, in the headlines. But there's plenty for him to be getting on with at home. He has proposed to extend Ukraine's ban on exporting domestically produced natural gas until the end of 2024. First introduced in February last year, the ban has already been extended once to cover 2023, Kyiv's energy minister had previously stressed the importance of its gas for domestic power generation because of the impact of the war on coal production. I mention this not only to make reference to the energy front, something we haven't talked about for a while, but because it is yet another indicator of the fact that this war is set to last beyond what many initially expected. And in that vein, it perhaps comes as no surprise that officials from the US government have written to congressional leaders today to back a further $11.8 billion in new funding to Ukraine. In that letter, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin, and Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen wrote that the multi billion dollar package is the minimum amount needed to help cover Ukraine's baseline needs. They said Ukraine is spending more than 100 percent of its total tax revenue on the war and that it is entirely dependent on outside support to keep the government and economy functioning. They then also sought to reassure Congress that the package will come with an unprecedented level of robust oversight and transparency and will be conditioned on Ukraine making essential reforms. Now, those explanatory notes and justifications are very telling, I think, and something I'll return to in my final thought. But lastly, since we're on the matter of funding in the context of Ukraine, the Ministry of Health has announced it has fully repaired 421 medical facilities and partly restored a further 413 damaged in the war. Since the beginning of the conflict, the ministry states that Russia has damaged 1,468 medical facilities in Ukraine and completely destroyed an additional 193. The most significant rebuildings we've seen are in the cities of Dnipro, Kiev, Kharkiv, Chernihiv and Mikolaev. Notably, the Mykolaiv Regional Children's Clinical Hospital, which was damaged at the beginning of the war, indeed I remember reporting on it, has now been fully repaired welcome news and representative of where money from Washington and other Western capitals is going.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Francis Dernley. Um, We've talked a little bit about uh, Ukraine news there and EU news, but there's also lots of news also coming out of Russia today. Can you talk us through that?
1: Sure. Well, it's just worth mentioning Russia has placed on its wanted list another judge from the International Criminal Court, which, of course, issued that arrest warrant for Putin earlier this year. So the Russian Interior Ministry has said that Sergio Godinez, a Costa Rican judge at the Hague-based court, was wanted in the framework of a criminal investigation. Now, it didn't provide any more details of what the allegations against him are. Russia, of course, has previously issued arrest warrants for Karim Khan, an ICC prosecutor, and several judges. In September, Moscow also revealed that it was seeking the arrest of Hofmanski, the ICC president. Does this come as any surprise? No. Does it show that the ICC arrest warrant issued to Putin has upset the Kremlin? Absolutely. But since I referenced the energy front a few moments ago, an interesting intervention from Sergei Lavrov in other news, Russia's foreign minister, who has accused the West of provoking crises on the global oil and gas market by rushing to switch to green energy and imposing pressure on other countries to do the same. So to quote from him, In fact, the reasons for the negative phenomena in the energy sector were the irresponsible actions of the collective West when it decided to force the green transition for itself and impose the same green transition on other countries that were simply not economically ready for it. He then added that Western boycotts of Russian energy in response to the war in Ukraine had dealt a serious blow to global energy security. These steps led to the rupture of historical value chains, costly redistribution of global energy flows and rising transaction and logistics costs. He then went on and said that the blowing up of the Lord Stream gas pipelines had deprived the continent of cheap gas and made it more reliant on expensive imports from elsewhere, including the United States. Now, it's true to say that energy security has become an increasingly important subject, though I think the idea that it means an inevitable drift to green energy as part of some sort of shady Western scheme is, well, simply inaccurate. In fact, what's happened is that there has been a renewed anxiety in countries like Britain about what green policies might mean in the context of not having access to Russian oil and gas and broader questions about energy security. It has sparked conversations about the need to produce more of our own oil and gas, as well as sourcing that energy, so not green energy, but oil and gas specifically, from elsewhere, including the Gulf and Middle East. I would argue, perhaps controversially, that this war has slowed down rather than accelerated the Green Agenda, albeit not in a way that is necessarily favourable to Moscow. So need for far more nuance than Mr Lavrov has offered there, I would argue. Now, lastly, the military context. Sergei Shoigu, Russia's defence minister, has hosted a top Chinese general and defence delegation in Moscow today's for talks to deepen military cooperation. Uh, Shoigu welcomed a high-ranking general and vice chairman of Beijing's Central Military Commission in a red carpet ceremony in Moscow. We, unlike some aggressive Western countries, are not creating a military bloc, he said. Relations between Russia and China are an example of strategic cooperation based on trust and respect. I'm sure that today's meeting will be another step to deepen the multi-profile links between our two countries and military departments. Russia and Myanmar are also conducting joint naval exercises in the Andaman Sea over the next three days. Admiral Yevminov, head of the Russian Navy, met the country's Junta leader yesterday. Just for some context there, the two countries are, of course, close allies. The Junta had described the invasion of Ukraine as justified and imported $406 million worth of arms and equipment from Russia since seizing power in February 2021. It's the first time the two countries have done combined drills, but I think it comes as no surprise given that context there. So just further examples, David, of the allies Russia is drawing upon as we approach two years of war. Well, thank you very
2: much, Francis. Let's go back to Joe. Joe Barnes, yesterday, listeners will have heard an interview I did with Alicia Kearns, Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Conservative MP here, who is talking about uh, the continued threat and evolution of the Wagner Group, not a group we've talked about much in the past few months, since really the, the, the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin in August. There's been some interesting footage coming out of Sudan Dan, and we've got to be careful, obviously, caveat supply, but it potentially uh, involves the Wagner Group and also Ukrainian special forces. Can you tell us what you've seen, Joe?
3: Yeah, so let's start off with... Uh, so West African country, Sudan, is a known sort of hub and destination for Wagner fighters. And that's been filmed by Western officials and Ukrainian officials. But, so last week, Ukrainian special forces were allegedly filmed fighting Wagner mercenaries in Sudan. So there was a two-minute clip that was published by the Kyiv Post newspaper and that purported to show an elite unit of Ukraine's military intelligence service surrounding a building at the ground level. Infrared footage, say shot from what appeared to be like a spotter drone, um, the footage was seemingly shot at night, showed at least two figures, so believed to be Wagner fighters, standing in a second floor room by the window and then the video shows several what look like rocket-propelled could be smaller mortar style weapons are then fired into the building where the men were spotted and then at one point some of the men in the window begin to fire back towards where the ukrainians were spotted or were apparent ukrainians and others can be seen escaping into what is a dense urban area Ace say that actually showed what people that looked like dressed like how i have seen ukrainian special forces dressed in ukraine so the sort of the same uniform but it's hard to tell it's, it's grainy footage it's, as i said it was shot at night it was infrared so you can only like see the silhouettes of these people there's a second drone video the Kyiv post shared and it appears to be shot during a day this time and it shows a number of men running through the streets Of another sort of populated dense urban environment as explosions ring out around the area. The source of the blasts are unclear but some of the strikes trigger fireballs that stretch the length of these low-rise apartment buildings in the area and others hurl plumes of smoke and dust into the sky. There are no visible casualties in this video and there are no Ukrainian operatives to be seen. So, what do we know? The Ukrainian government has not officially acknowledged the deployment of its special forces to Sudan or operations targeting Wagner fighters in Africa. But I was speaking to a uh, Ukrainian intelligence source and they told me that the videos... It was correct to assume that these were Ukrainian strikes on Wagner in the West African state. Um, So, a security source told the Kyiv Post the footage probably shows the work of special units of the main intelligence directorate of the Ministry of Defence of Ukraine. So that's the the uh, H-U-R, the girl or her, that we often speak about, that's led by Budinov. So the source added that the footage had been filmed in the last two weeks. We could not independently verify these claims. But it does come after Ukrainian special forces were reported to have been behind a series of strikes against Wagner-backed Militias in Sudan in September. So going back to September, I remember reporting on this. It was a CNN report, a source told CNN that a non-Sudanese military had carried out a series of drone strikes and a ground assault on the Rapid Support Forces, which is a sort of Wagner-backed militia in Sudan, in near the North African country's capital. So here's, like, it's obviously hard to stand these up. But what we do know is Major General Krylla Budnov he's the head of Ukraine's military intelligence is known to favor strikes that demonstrate Kiev's international reach and show that Russian targets are not safe anywhere so look he's like mastermind did apparently this car bombing that Don was speaking about in Donbass he his team are often behind Russian strikes deep inside Russia inside Crimea and Possibly in Africa. And his spokesman, Andrei Youssef, said we can neither confirm nor deny his attacks, but you can also recall the words of General Budinov that Ukraine will destroy Russian war criminals anywhere in the world, wherever they are. So it's hard to tell, but it could possibly be a small group of Ukrainian soldiers, special forces, operatives, that have taken the fight to Russian targets, Wagner targets in Africa while Africa is still a prime target for Russia and Wagner itself, even though it's not a state entity as much as it was pre-Pregosian's mutiny. And I'll stop there on that one.
2: Thank you very much, Joe. That's fascinating. Let's move, I think, then to our final thoughts. Dom Nichols.
4: Yeah,
0: thanks, David. So I'd like to take us back to the, um, the, the left bank, the east bank of the Dnieper River down in the Hezon Oblast. And not only because of what may or may not be happening down there, but also how to interpret it, and and I think it offers us a a lesson about the how everything is connected in in this war. Right? What what on earth am I talking about? So I think what's going on down there before we even get to the level of thinking, what do we think about it? We need to get through the model that we're going to build for ourselves of how to think about this, and what I mean by that is we think there are we think there's armored vehicles. Ukrainian armoured vehicles on the East Bank. We think there is air defence on the, on the West Bank, providing some sort of bubble of protection. Now, if we just take that, that OK, fine, that could still be some kind of reconnaissance in force. As I said, you don't want to lose equipment, but actually some of it you, you're you prepared to put into harm's way to see, uh, to see what the return is you get. Now, if Ukraine are staying, not just looking We should expect to see things like armoured engineer equipment, and other specialised equipment, the real key bits and pieces that you look for in the enemy to destroy. You look for the bridging equipment, you look for the mine breaching equipment, you look for the very specialist kit, because without that, it's very, very difficult to go and do all the other stuff. So if Ukraine are really serious about pushing on down in that area and trying to Trying to perhaps open up another flank, we should expect to see some specialised equipment, and I've singled out engineering, armoured engineering equipment there, which I don't think we've seen yet on the on the east bank. That really would be a statement of intent, because you do not want to lose that stuff. So there's a will- you've got to have a willingness to take risk in war, uh, and but before we could even think about trying to interpret what we're seeing down there, we have to get through the lens of. This whole process is made harder by the process of external military support for Ukraine. Again, what, please stick with me at the end. I'm sorry if it's a bit rambly. As a military commander, you have to expect losses, right? You try and minimise them. Of course you do. I'm talking both in personnel and equipment. You try to minimise them, but you have to accept risk. You shouldn't allow the prospect of equipment loss to be the main driver when you're designing operational plans. But if you are not sure of the pipeline of support, if, for example, you've been gifted 14 Challenger 2 by Britain, and we think one's been knocked out already, possibly repaired, but let's say you know, one one knocked out already, and 31 Abrams from the US, and maybe nothing more, then you you can forgive, I think, Ukrainian commanders for allowing considerations such as equipment losses to be forefront of the planning. So take that back to the news today. today. I don't really know how to think about what we're seeing down there yet because I don't know if if they would be willing to risk armoured engineering equipment, I'm using for this example, for the fear of losing it. And so I I can't even get through that bit before I think about, well, what is this? Is it reconnaissance in force? Is it opening up another flank? Is this just a diversion? So we've got to sort of take everything in the mix. And it does take us back to this idea that the Western support has been very good, in some places excellent, in some places less good. But offering stuff without the promise of, of more to come, really, I know it could possibly go into the, the the bucket of a nice problem to have, but it is still a problem. You know, if you've only got 14 Challenger, do you risk them on this? If you know you've got more coming up behind it, then then fi- that is one thing, that is one worry off your mind. But I think the this is another example where the piecemeal support in terms of equipment from the West into Ukraine, this is a very real, I think, operational example the effect on the ground here i think you can trace right back to the policies of external supporters for ukraine in their gifting of weapons so i'm not saying this is going to the whole thing is going to collapse because of the the, the gifting has not been as the pledging of equipment through ramstein and elsewhere has not been um, constant and forthcoming of course there's been huge efforts in that regard i'm just saying that these big strategic policy choices that we see generally from uh, politicians in, and sitting around tables and, and all that kind of stuff really does have a, an effect on the ground. And I'm just wondering if this is one of those times where we can see that. And as I said, right at the start of this, so I don't even know. I can't get to what do I think about what's happening yet because I can't yet work out how to think about it. And if any of those bigger issues are in play here about what may or may not be happening I'm sorry if that's a little bit rambly. We'll probably return to this because I, don't, I don't, see that, don't see that situation changing down south anytime soon or the intent. So we will come back to this again. But, but hopefully, that's, um, hopefully that's clear. Thank you very much, Tom. Joe Barnes. Yep,
3: yeah, and I'm going to keep mine short and sweet and give you the response that Volodymyr Zelensky, in short, gave to the news of Ukraine's uh, recommendation by the European Council for membership talks. He said this is a strong and historic step. ...that paves the way to a stronger EU with Ukraine as its member. I thank the EU and personally Ursula von der Leyen for supporting Ukraine on our road to the EU. Ukraine continues on its reform path and looks forward to the European Council's decision in December. And then there's a company by video where he basically speaks a lot about sort of the European values... ...that Ukraine's been fighting for in its war against Russia... And he said that he's going to keep his promise, the institutions of Ukraine's promise, that they will be reformed in line with European standards for them to join. And then he said today the history of Ukraine and the whole of Europe has taken the right step. So, yeah, it's, it's good news for Ukraine and good news from, from for Zelensky. And I'll stop there and uh, thanks for listening, folks.
2: Francis Stanley, would you like the very final words?
1: Thanks, David. I mentioned earlier on... Some of those explanatory notes that were in the letter to leaders in Congress, basically trying to say, don't worry, there will be a lot of scrutiny about this money that's going to Kyiv. And of course, the reason for that is there is this narrative now that has been particularly propagated by certain candidates in the Republican leadership contest that the money that is going to Ukraine is being funneled into corrupt projects in some way. And Luke Coffey of the Hudson Institute has just published a report on this, challenging some of these narratives and misconceptions about the war in Ukraine, which is being used to undermine support for Kyiv, not only within that very specific Republican election context, but also more widely across the United States by those who are opposed to Ukraine, but also it's being propagated on social media by... Russia and also those who support the Russian cause. So I think this is a timely report and I can't go into it in all of its nuances and details, but it talks about how blank checks, this idea of Ukraine getting a blank check from America isn't true. He says that every dollar spent in support of Ukraine is authorised by Congress and is used for a very specific purpose. Approximately $70 billion of aid never leaves the US. Instead, it goes to support the defence industry, which then, of course, provides certain weapons to Ukraine. He says there's plenty of oversight for Ukraine aid, that there is a working group that has 160 officials across 20 agencies monitoring the aid, and investigations, have not yet substantiated significant waste, fraud or abuse. So, again, challenging that misconception. Europe's stability matters to the US economy. It underlines that point and talks about the importance of that. Lessons from Ukraine is making our military stronger. Another point that one hears quite often is this idea of it undermining Western military capacity, the war in Ukraine, and for that reason that there should be less sent to Kiev and saying that actually that is... Again, very contestable that the performance of US made hardware gets real world combat test experience as a result of Ukraine, something that matters very much in the context of an increasingly febrile world and international uh, situation. Also, challenges this idea of Ukraine being America's new forever war. We've heard that term a lot recently in recent years. Just stresses the point U- no US troops are fighting against Russia inside Ukraine. Ukrainians are not asking for, nor do they want, US troops to help them fight in Russia. This is not a proxy war. A proxy war is a war fought by states acting at the instigation or on behalf of other states. The US has never instigated Ukraine to fight. The US is not forcing the Ukrainians to fight on its behalf. It is choosing to support them. An important nuance when we're talking about that term of proxy war. And finally, it challenges this figure that's sometimes banded around that the war in Ukraine is costing $900 per American household. Important to stress that income tax is not levied evenly across households. The top 1% of earners pay 42% of all federal income tax. Quite an extraordinary statistic that. And so this idea that every American is having to pay extensive amounts of money to support Kiev is inaccurate. Now, as I say, that's just very much some of the top line points in this report. We'll We'll put the link in the description. But I think, as I say, it's timely and interesting in terms of puncturing some of those narratives that too often go uncontested.
2: Thanks so much, Dom, Joe and Francis. Today, Ukrainian politicians are voting on the country's wartime budget. I wanted to understand where Ukraine's money comes from, what it spends it on, and the political and social tensions associated with difficult decisions made in wartime. I spoke to Yuri Gaidai, a senior economist at the Centre for Economic Strategy, a Ukrainian non-governmental research body, to get his views on Ukraine's wartime budget. Here's our conversation. Well, Yuri... Thank you so much for your time today. Would you start by just introducing yourself to, to our listeners and telling us about your work?
4: Yeah. Hi, David. I very much appreciate uh, the invitation as I am an avid listener of your podcast. And I work in a Kyiv based think tank, Center for Economic Strategy. And my focus as a senior economist there is on uh, taxation, also budget, general fiscal issues, regulation, and a bit of uh, macroeconomy.
2: Well, let's start with a rather broad question. What can you tell us about the state of Ukraine's finances, its fiscal position in November 2023? Where does the money come from that it spends and how how is it spent? Where is it spent?
4: David, I would start uh, just saying that uh, since 2015, Ukraine exercised quite a responsible fiscal policy. So it was average budget deficit was... uh, was two and a half percent, and state expenses were moderate, and it positively impacted the economy of Ukraine, there's macroeconomic stability, single digit inflation. But of course, after Russian invasion, invasion, the defense spending increased by more than ten times, so total expenses doubled. We basically have now like half of the budget spent on defense, and another half of the budget spent on everything else: So it's social security, public order, education, healthcare, governance. And uh, the deficit uh, this year is estimated to be 44 billion dollars, which would be like 26% of GDP. That's a huge uh, number. So capital expenses like uh, road construction, infrastructure spending, they decreased significantly, and they will—they are expected to decrease more next year. Healthcare and education, like, also decreased in real terms, like most of other items. Uh, how does the government fund it? O- own revenues now cover about 40% uh, of the expenses. So, so, roughly half of it comes from value added tax. And other main sources are taxation of personal income, corporate income, and some s- 10% come from excises. So, pretty uh, usual mix. It's important to keep in mind that beside of direct impact of war on Ukrainian economy, there is factor which is very important is that our trade is very limited because the trade is blocked mostly by Russia, the southern ports. So, uh, now our exports are like half, half the, the, the volume they were before the invasion in, uh, in natural, uh, in, in tons. Yes. And, uh, by the way, the, mm, action by uh, polish lorry drivers which they launched uh, a few days ago i think it will add further strain to ukrainian trade logistics so there is like a significant limit to what ukrainian economy can uh, produce and how much taxes it can pay uh, so Ukraine is very much reliant on external financing now. Funding comes from grants from loans, and the government also issues domestic bonds selling them, and it makes up like the remainder, about 60 percent of the revenues of the funding.:
2: In your view, what are the differences between the first war budget back in 2022 and today? How has spending changed or shifted across, across the years?
4: Well, I would say that it's the same wartime budget. So $41, million, $41 billion would be allocated for defense and uh, public order and safety. And it would be barely covered by uh, a country's own projected revenues. And roughly the same amount will be spent on civil needs, but including a large chunk uh, for the debt service. Um The main difference, I think, will be that next year government uh, plans to further decrease all possible capital expenditures. So they will be reduced by about 40% more and uh, they will be just 2% of GDP. So basically only essential spending will be uh, next year. And there are basically no expenses envisioned for reconstruction from the war, except from what will be received from uh, external funding.
2: So to sort of put that really simply, does that mean to keep the money flowing into the armed forces, it means the roads will not be repaired, that that kind of thing?
4: That's the dilemma we are facing and discussing for uh, for the last uh, time, for for the last uh, one and a half or two years.
2: Yuri, in your earlier answer, you talked about how Ukraine is reliant on external partners for around 60% of its funding, its spending. Could you talk a bit more about who these groups, these countries are, how much they're giving, where it goes to? And the big question, of course, is what happens if this funding is reduced in the future?
4: Last year in 2022, the uh, main donor uh, of Ukrainian budget was uh, were United States, uh, but uh, this year the station uh, has changed. Uh, so uh, the financing from United States uh, is uh, quite on par. Uh, we received uh, like 11 billion dollars uh, from them uh, this year, uh, but financing from EU increased significantly. So they now now they are uh, the main. Uh, donor of uh, Ukrainian budget was like 16 billion dollars. But it is important to mention that the financing from EU comes in form of loans as well as financing from IMF and Canada who are also significant donors. While US, uh, United States, they provide the financing in form of direct grants to um, Ukrainian budget. So EU, United States, IMF, Canada and Japan, slightly less. It was about $600 billion was received from United Kingdom. But also an- another um, significant portion is financed by the sale of domestic bonds by Ukrainian government. And these are doing well, especially in last months. So about $13 billion were received from domestic bonds. And um, there is expectation, government anticipates that the borrowing uh, will be needed at roughly the same level next year. So about $50 billion to cover uh, all the funding needs. Uh, Budget gap plus needs to service our debts. Uh, And 80% 80 of it roughly is expected to, to come from external donors. US and EU also loans from IMF and IBRD. And also local borrowings.
2: So I I know it's a a bit of a hypothetical at the moment, but could you talk a bit about what it would mean for the country if this support was reduced or cancelled? I mean, I, I ask this, of course, because over the past few months, we've been asking a lot of questions about support from the West towards Ukraine and how that might change in the future, given the political situation changing in various countries. But could you Sketch out for us what it would mean for the for, for Ukraine if, if this funding, if this external funding w- on which it's so reliant uh, changed or was
4: reduced. So government would have to cut on expenses, but there is no big room for further reductions. Uh, so it means monetary financing. Basically, it means that a national bank uh, would buy domestic bonds from the government via emission of our local currency. It was used last year at the beginning of invasion in April, uh, May to June extensively and through the year. And um, of course, as any uh, monetary financing, which is not based on the economy growth, it led to a significant spike uh, in inflation and to change in foreign exchange rate. As the financing uh, in 2023 was uh, steady, uh, National Bank managed to tame the inflation and there was no need to print uh, hryvnia. And I very much hope uh, that it would be the same next year uh, because uh, there is uh, like a limit to the monetary financing, uh, which is not severely damaging to economy. And uh, I would say there there are no exact estimates, uh, as it's uh, hard to for the economists to do like the good calculations when the environment is so volatile. But I would say that uh, the limit of monetary financing, which would not damage the economy severely, is uh, about uh, seven hundred million dollars a month, which is much less uh, than uh, the financing needs. So. Uh, if there will be need to print more, it would uh, eventually lead to collapse of Ukrainian macro stability, and it would damage uh, business which still uh, operates in Ukraine despite all the war pressures. and it would uh, significantly increase poverty rates, and I, mm, I'm afraid it would drive another way of emigration from Ukraine, at least temporary immigration. Uh, so uh, our local investment analysts uh, estimated that government still may enter 2024 with a small liquidity cushion of like five six billion dollars giving it some room for maneuver in the early 2024 but if our uh, partners would not deliver on the Commitments which they uh, previously made, and you know that there are, there are significant political risks in the United States, for example, and there is still no final approval uh, from EU. It, it would have direct consequences for Ukrainian economy and also for um, ability to to keep the f- financing and supply of of the army of the military.
2: One thing to explore, then, I think is. Of course, the Ukrainian government has been on the hunt for other sources of revenue, uh, uh, creative in how it's trying to raise money for the war effort and for its own finances. Could you tell us a- about what they've been looking at and what have they implemented, implemented so far? I, I realise we might get a little bit into sort of local um, Ukrainian politics here, but I think it'd be interesting for the listeners to understand the kind of, the kind of discussions and the plans on the ground.
4: Yeah, uh, so first steps which were taken uh, pr- previously are that government revoked uh, most of the tax break, breaks which were initially introduced uh, at the beginning of the invasion to support Ukrainian business. So all of these tax breaks or most of these tax breaks were revoked and excises were returned to the previous uh, levels for fuel uh, which were previously decreased to address the fuel shortage, which is not the problem now. And um, also government uh, suggests uh, to increase uh, taxes on banks' income for the next year and uh well, the other options are just significant reduction of non-essential state-funded expenses because basically there is no uh, no big room to increase taxation further as the companies which are strained by the war, they will just go out of business or will try to evade taxes in like more hardcore mode. So uh, another option which... Uh, government is looking now into and which it includes uh, included into budget project, project for for the next year is to take a part of taxes which go to local budget budgets to we call them hermadas and there there are now like extensive discussions around it and we've been talking
2: about economics for For all of this time but how politically is this going down what do you think the reaction of the population to things like tax breaks being revoked uh, the government potentially taking money from local budgets how is the population reacting to that
4: yeah so the population let's say active part of population it uh, it continues demanding that uh, the government directs all available funding to the military and it demands the same from uh, the local governance uh, we see uh, that in major cities uh, with bigger budgets, there are regular uh, protests, despite the wartime people gather with uh, demands to cut down on any expenses for reconstruction of streets or beautification and demand that these funds funds be redi- redirected for military needs. There was one of the recent examples was that uh, some journalists noted that the, the procurement was announced to... To, for capital repairs of Sofia Kievska Golden Domes, which would cost around one and a half million pounds if converted. And it raised a lot of discussions and outcries that it's, uh, despite it's uh, like one of the most important churches in Ukraine and uh, it has significance, uh, symbolic significance, and historical significance, it's not the time to uh, repair these Golden Domes, which uh, which are frankly in, in quite a bad state. And this public outcry was tamed by the explanation that only a small fraction of this procurement would be spent now just for some critical safety-based actions and all the, the, the most of the expenses will be made later speaking of i would uh, need to dive deeper on how the local budgets are financed if you allow me uh, so local budgets, they are roughly a quarter of the state budget now in terms of volume. And the decentralization reform, which was uh, started in 2015, was one of most successful reforms in Ukraine, which shifted financing and power significantly to local level. The primary funding source for, for local budgets is personal income tax. So it is collected on central level, but uh, two-thirds of it are allocated to Armadas. The design problem there is that it is allocated based on where employers are registered, not the employees, citizens, but employers. And uh, many large employers are registered in major cities like Kiev, which increases economical disparities here. So to level it up, uh, government collects uh, part of uh, the surplus of the richer Ramadas and transfers it to those who are economically weaker and since the invasion local authorities where military personnel are stationed where there are military units they have received a windfall income tax revenue because uh, expenditure for military salaries increased significantly was the salaries were increased, and the number of servicemen increased significantly. And this led to, well, unprecedented increase of revenues for some armadas. Um, And uh, some Hermadas uh, use, uh, use these taxes wisely and they direct some amount of, of these revenues to support the military units which are stationed in these Hermadas or just registered there if, if they are on the close to battlefields and to support the temporarily displaced persons, etc. But the spending is not. Uh, uh, always efficient and there is a significant accumulated surplus of local budgets which is now uh, measuring like over two billion pounds which is basically amounts of central budgets revenues and the suggestion of government is to take this personal income tax which is received from military and not distributed to local authorities but to spend it directly on the military spending for production of artillery shells of drones Mm, and the discussion is rather not especially in terms of the public view of public opinion of citizens is not uh, should we choose between local budgets and the military but rather is it more efficient to spend this this money via local budgets, who uh, uh, can be quicker to address some some issues, to who can directly contact the military units and respond to their needs? Or we need to direct everything through centralized budget and in accordance to strategic planning and uh, having having in mind that uh, Ministry of Defense better knows the needs of uh, particular units. Uh, so the most of discussion is is about this. And while local authorities uh, say that. Uh, um, they will lose significant amount of, of their financing and they will, would not uh, be able to fulfill the, the, the commitments for public services. The Ministry of Finance argues that uh, overall local budgets will remain in aggregate surplus even without these military-related revenues. So um, Ministry of Finance suggests that the loss of income for less developed Romadas will be compensated by additional subsidies they made estimates for how much it will be needed for these direct grants and basically all this discussion is now going around parliament which needs to vote the budget code and which needs to low the uh, towards to for the law on budget for, for for the next year
2: thank you very much for that absolute deep dive into local and national ukrainian um, fiscal spending there what do you think the fiscal picture for Ukraine looks like then for the year ahead? We've spoken about the macro, the micro. Let's go back to the to, to the macro.
4: To sum up, Ukraine uh, is crucially dependent on external financing. So if the commitments which were made by our partners, first of all, the EU and United States will be kept, Ukraine is fine for the next year because uh, uh, their own revenues are collected it is functional the, well they, they are increasing compared to last year and increasing far uh, quick, quicker than inflation so uh, mm, if the support is uh, steady and timely ukraine is able to to sustain the macro stability and that the inflation is returning back to single digits which is very good news for ukrainian economy and also for ukrainian business so uh, overall uh, well, th- that's what we will keep our eyes on uh, the political processes and the decision making in uh, in the in Western countries, uh, yeah, because we totally depend on, on 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 this another half of the budget now.
2: Yuri, any any final thoughts
4: from you? yeah for our listeners just to to give them the scale of uh, like the financing needs uh, of ukraine i just had uh, the fresh figures of revenues for october central budget uh, received 2.7 billion dollars of own revenues in ukraine and at the same time i checked the uh, uk central budget revenues in september last available figures as, as i understand are about 95 billion dollars 77 billion pounds so the scale of ukrainian financing needs every month or, or yearly if we compare them with the volume of uh, western economy we understand that it's uh, not a significant amount if this like four $4 billion dollars monthly which ukraine needs are spread evenly between uh, the eu united states financing from imf as international financial institutions it's really not significant uh, amount of course keeping in mind that it's always the money of western taxpayers but still the, the impact for ukraine which uh, it will, which it has or uh, the absence of the financing will make, I think it's not comparable to, to, to the scale of it in, in the Western economy.
2: Well, thank you very, very much for your time. Ukraine the Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph. .co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube... Please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message and you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.